This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 167. Hello, Metamorphs. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorcity.com. This is the show where I share my fiction with you, available in audio for the first time anywhere. So let's kick things off with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 25 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. MCPD Medical Examiner Morgan Drowling has been working to solve a string of murder kidnappings. At first, Morgan's assistant, Lisa, misidentified the cause of death as vampire attacks, but Morgan's close examination of one of the bodies revealed that the bite marks had been faked. Morgan's best friend, detective and wizard Catherine Catane, found that the bodies held traces of death mana. That suggests that they were being used for some kind of black magic ritual, though the kidnapper's intended purpose is still unknown. Given how powerful even one human sacrifice is, though, it's likely that the killers are storing up mana for a ritual spell of reality-warping power. In our last episode, Kate and her new partner, Lizzie, were dispatched to the docks of Soulshore, where another of the fake vampire victims has just been found. Kate performed an augury on the body, which showed her the face of one of the kidnappers. Lizzie recognized the man as Nevin Ardlito, a former classmate at the elite Chisholm University. Kate filed a bolo report for the man, and she and Lizzie hurried off to Justice Tower to get a search warrant for Nevin's house. Beside their shared passions for justice and good coffee, Kate and Morgan have something else in common. Kate's new sexual partner, John the Incubus. Morgan and John were friends in childhood, when their parents were allies in the political arena. When John was exposed as an incubus, however, his family excoriated him, stripping him of his rank, his titles, and even the family name. Morgan was forbidden to see John or associate with him, and they fell out of contact for many years. Two days ago, though, they finally saw each other again in person, when they collaborated on organizing Kate's birthday dinner. Morgan's family would still disapprove, but fortunately, she doesn't care what they think of her friends anymore. Meanwhile, over at the Precinct 9 station house, police psychologist Jared Tamlin is dealing with Kate Katane in a completely different context. Jared was in charge of rehabilitating Kate, so that she could be cleared to return to duty. But Kate got frustrated and impatient with Jared's methods and decided to go over his head. She accepted a transfer to the Elite Special Investigations Division which also took her off of Jared's caseload and transferred her to SID's in-house psychologist. Kate was immediately cleared for duty, despite the strong evidence that she was emotionally and psychologically unready. Jared filed a formal protest with his director and tried to convince SID's Captain Shaw that they weren't doing Kate any favors. 
If she gets caught in another firefight in her present condition, she's likely to get herself killed. But Jared's pleas fell on deaf ears. To Shaw's mind, they need Kate in the field, a warrior in their ongoing fight against the criminal underworld. Shaw tells Jared, If you keep your warriors off the battlefield because they might get killed, you lose the war. But Jared's not giving up yet, and he's going to do everything he can to keep Kate alive whether she wants his help or not. The Lost and the Least A novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 25 Morgan left Evan at Kenning Security and headed straight to work. Once there, she opened one of the body storage lockers, slid inside, and slept like the literal dead. In general, she preferred to regenerate at her apartment, but Evan had been on the run from some very unpleasant people. People who, it seemed, had an abiding hatred of vampires. If they decided to track him by his blood trail, she didn't want them to stumble across her body and decide to chop off her head while they had the chance. She awoke with the same disorienting abruptness as always, an instantaneous transition from dead body to undead medical examiner. In this case, it was triggered by a loud, aggressive rock song playing on the morgue stereo. Morgan bonked her head against the inside of the locker as she bolted upright, sending a loud, hollow bong echoing all around her. Yashua! someone cursed on the other side of the locker door. That reminded Morgan where she was, and after a few seconds of fumbling, she got the locker door open and pulled herself out, sliding the rack out with her. She bent her head back over the edge of the rack and looked out at the room, upside down. A thirty-something human woman with blonde-brown hair and pale, freckled skin stood at the far corner of the room. Her eyes were wide, and she clutched something against her chest. A crucifix, probably. Morgan averted her eyes and smiled into the middle distance, waving vaguely in her direction. Hello, Pamela. I like your music. Did you know you could wake the dead with it? Pamela must have recognized her a moment later because she hurriedly hid the sign of the yew tree under her shirt. Morgan focused on her then. She looked embarrassed. Holy shit, boss. Don't scare me like that. Pamela came over and gave Morgan a hand climbing out of the locker, which Morgan graciously accepted. It was entirely unintentional, my dear. What time is it? Quarter to four, Pamela said. We just got a call from dispatch. Patrol Services has a body they want us to check out up in Soulshore. That got Morgan's attention. Another fake vampire attack? It looks like it, yeah. Did you want to do this one yourself? Morgan sighed. Sunset isn't until after nine right now, and there's not enough shade for me to hide in Soulshore. It will have to be Lisa. Pamela's lips compressed into a line. Morgan could see her wrestling with undiplomatic thoughts. I was about to go take a look at those other bodies, but I could go with her if you want. Translation, Morgan thought. Lisa bollocks the autopsies the last time, and you want to make sure it doesn't happen again. 
That's a good idea, Morgan said. See if you can pick up any impressions that might be useful. Pamela was one of FID's forensic psychometrists, responsible for reading bodies and other evidence, to look for images and memories that might be attached to them. Morgan hoped that Pamela might be able to learn something that more mundane methods could not. Lisa's out on another call right now, Pamela said. I'll get the gear together and we can go as soon as she gets back. Excellent. Keep me advised. Pamela waved a hand at this, then headed into the analysis lab to begin gathering equipment. Morgan went out to the front office in search of a cup of coffee. She would need blood soon, but the psychological need for caffeine was more pressing at the moment. She was surprised to find a handsome, dark-haired man waiting in the reception area. He looked human, but Morgan's nose told her otherwise. He smiled up at her over the top of a magazine, his eyes flashing from green to amber. Leo, the technician working the front desk, straightened in his chair and cleared his throat. Hey, Doc. This guy's been waiting to talk to you. Not too long, I hope. The man rose as Morgan approached him, and they met in an embrace. Hello, John. Morgan. John gave her a peck on the lips. Is your shift almost over? Morgan clucked her tongue. Just beginning, I'm afraid. But I'm not on the clock just yet. Follow me. I was just about to get some coffee. The coffee pot was in the staff kitchen, just down the hall from reception, and well away from the more putrescent parts of their profession. The pot was, unsurprisingly, empty, save for a thin black smudge on the bottom that had probably been sitting there for hours. Morgan grabbed the pot and the filter basket and headed for the sink. So, John, she said brightly, I've seen you twice now in the same year. Should I take it on mutual exile as finally at an end? John leaned back against the counter next to her as she busied herself with cleaning the coffee pot. She watched him out of the corner of her eye. His usual swagger seemed to have abandoned him. He looked down at his shoes and said nothing for several seconds. You know I didn't stay away because I didn't want to see you, he said at last. I thought I knew that at first. She tried to keep her voice light, but she could feel a hint of the old hurt creeping back in. After the first decade, I began to take it personally. I know, John said. After I got kicked out of House Holloway, I got... selfish. Stupid. Power drunk, you mean, on being able to fuck anyone you laid eyes on? Morgan said the words matter-of-factly, without heat. She focused her attention on the scrubbing pad making short, sharp motions against the sludge on the bottom of the pot. John sighed. Look, I'm not going to defend it, but you also know that if we'd kept seeing each other, your parents might have excoriated you, too. He paused. Plus, I probably would have gotten you pregnant. I didn't know shit about incubus sperm back then, how resistant it is. I would have screwed up your whole life. Morgan rolled her eyes. Whereas, instead, I had the privilege of screwing it up all on my own. Scrub, scrub, scrub went the pad against the coffee stain, to no good effect. She added some more dish soap and scrubbed harder. It might not have been so bad, being a teenage mother to a baby incubus. At least I wouldn't have ended up as Braddock's slave. John glowered. 
It still makes me furious that that happened to you. I wish I could dig him up and dust him again myself. Oh, it makes you furious, does it? There was a loud crack, and the glass coffee pot broke into a half dozen pieces, the jagged glass slicing into her skin. Morgan cursed and dropped the pieces into the sink. She looked down at her hands, watching as the long cuts knitted themselves back together within seconds. Then John was behind her, wrapping her in a gentle, steady embrace. She closed her eyes and leaned back against him, feeling ragged and raw. I don't want to fight, she whispered. I still love you. And I love you, John said, his voice rough. Morgan chuffed a quiet laugh at that. <laughs> I dare say it's been a long time since you've said that to anyone. John kissed the top of her head. Not as long as you think. It's been an interesting couple of years. Oh? How so? I fell in love, John said, with a woman I was supposed to seduce for the church. I loved her, and I lost her. He hesitated. And damn it all, I think I'm doing it again. It took Morgan a moment to realize what he meant. Wait, are you saying you're in love with Kate? John ran his fingertips slowly through her hair. Jealous, Morgan? Of her or of you? John chuckled. Either. Both. Morgan sighed. I don't know. Probably. More amazed than jealous, though. John, you are so very not her type. And yet she keeps asking me to fuck her, John said dryly. He stepped back, moved around to look her in the eyes. As a Daedra, he had no fear of her domination gaze. Or she was. I haven't heard from her since I dropped her off Saturday night. She said she wanted my help on this kidnapping case, but then poof. He waggled his fingers to suggest something vanishing into thin air. Nothing for two days. Well, she has been busy, Morgan said. She got promoted to special investigations, and they put her back to work almost immediately. Recognition dawned in John's eyes. So that's what they wanted to talk to her about. I was with her when the captain sent the invitation to come visit. His expression darkened, and then his gaze focused back on Morgan, frowning. Is it just me, or does that seem like a bad idea? She's not exactly stable right now. Morgan shook her head. I don't know. Before her birthday dinner, she'd barely spoken to me for weeks. We did have a good chat in the ladies, for what it's worth. Perhaps she's starting to open up again. So now she's shutting me out instead. John sat back on the counter, looking down at the shattered pieces of the coffee pot. She's running, Morgan. That first night she came to me, she said... There's darkness in me. I feel stained by it. He shook his head slightly. She's never been that honest with me again. I doubt she's even been that honest with herself. Morgan stepped forward, put a gentle hand on his arm. You want to help her? It wasn't a question. He nodded. Then just be there for her, in whatever ways she'll let you. She smiled and she's let you touch parts of her that no one else can. John chuckled once at that. He reached up with his other hand and placed it over hers, wrapping his strong fingers against her palm. 
What a picture we make, eh, Morgan? Me, the one she fucks but won't love. And you, the one she loves but won't fuck. He said it ironically, but the truth of the words still stabbed at Morgan like a stake through her heart. Tears welled up in her eyes, and she blinked them back. She remembered something Callie Linder had said this morning. I guess between us we make one whole lover. She leaned against him, and he wrapped his arms around her again. We'll help her however we can, he said. I'm not running away this time. Gratefully, Morgan squeezed him tighter. Good, because neither am I. Jared had trouble focusing for the rest of the day. His mind kept circling back to his encounter with Captain Shaw and the Androgyne's troubling reasoning for putting Katane back on duty so hastily. If your warriors stay off the battlefield because they might be killed, you lose the war. The fact that Shaw thought of these sworn officers of the peace as warriors was disturbing enough, but to actually admit that they were putting those officers in situations where they might be sacrificed for some larger cause... Jared shook his head. It was one thing to acknowledge that police officers were sometimes killed in the line of duty, but to approach this fact with such dispassionate calculation, to accept the reality of casualties so easily that they would knowingly put a damaged officer back into harm's way, that was cold on a level that Jared had never encountered before. Well, no, that wasn't quite true. He'd seen that kind of brutal pragmatism once before, when Malcolm's vampires had kidnapped his wife, Catherine, soon after he had joined the force. The syndicate had intended to turn her against her will, to use her as a lever to ensure that Jared would be compliant with their instructions. Fortunately, the Lightbringers had recovered her body before she reanimated. Jared had Catherine's body cremated, in accordance with her wishes, so she never became the monster the syndicate had tried to turn her into. Malcolm and his thugs had never cared one bit about Catherine. She was simply a tool in their larger designs. Jared feared that there was something of the same cold calculation in Shaw's use of Catherine Catane. Catherine? Catherine? Is that why I can't let this go? Because they have similar names? Jared hoped he was being more rational than that. I need another perspective on this. He looked at the clock. It was a quarter after four. She's probably still there. He picked up the phone and punched in the inner office number for the director of psychological services. Director Sakura answered on the third ring. Hello? Hi, Lauren. It's Jared. Do you have a few minutes? A few? What's going on? Well, I've been thinking about that case I wrote you about this morning and I just keep getting these alarm bells going off in my head, Jared said. I went to talk to Captain Shaw today, and... Let me stop you right there, Jared, Sakura said. I'm sorry, but I have no idea what you're talking about. Did I miss an email? What? No, it was a formal protest letter, hand-signed. I sent it by inner office mail. Let me see. No, I don't have anything from you. Jared bit back a curse. We have got to start accepting electronic signatures on official documents. This is ridiculous. Tell me something I don't know, Sakura sighed. What was this letter? Something about Shaw? Jared rubbed the bridge of his nose. 
Look, why don't I just come over to your office? I'm not going to trust the mail system with this again. I'll print up another copy and bring it with me, along with my progress notes. Fine with me, dear. I'll be here until six. Great. Thank you, Lauren. I'll be there shortly. Jared set the handset back in its cradle, then started pulling together his files on Katane. The formal reports had all gone to Dr. Bronson, but Jared still had the original observations in his notebooks, and he'd kept copies of the audio recordings from his sessions with Katane. There would be enough data there for Sakura to judge whether Jared was right in his assessment of Katane. Jared put everything into his briefcase, along with another signed copy of his protest letter. He waved goodbye to Captain Montgomery and Marcy, and headed down to the parking garage. A group of plainclothes officers were loading up an unmarked surveillance van near the garage exit. Jared didn't know their names. There were a lot of people on the force, even just in Precinct 9, and most of them never had occasion to visit his office. But one of them noticed him and waved. Hey, Doc. How's it going? Jared forced a smile, but he thought it came out more like a grimace. Another day battling the forces of bureaucracy, he said, holding up his briefcase. Inner office mail lost my paperwork, so I'm taking the direct approach. Sounds like business as usual, the officer said dryly. He left the van and came up alongside Jared as he walked. Hey, he said, his voice dropping to a more confidential level. You mind if I bend your ear for a second? I got a problem, and... The man hesitated, his voice abruptly turning self-conscious. I think I might need your professional services. Jared stopped and looked at the officer, trying to remember where he'd seen him before. Is he homicide? Narcotics? The man looked to be in his mid-twenties, with short brown hair, brown eyes, fair skin, a strong jaw. He looked like one expected cops to look like, but there was nothing about him that stood out. Jared's memory was drawing a complete blank. I really need to get downtown before it gets too late, Jared said apologetically. But he hesitated, noticing the vulnerable look in the officer's eyes. It took a lot for this guy to admit he needed help, he thought. If you put him off, you might lose him. But I can spare a few minutes, he added. Follow me to my skimmer. We can talk there. All right. They walked the rest of the way to the skimmer in silence. Jared used his key fob to unlock the doors. The officer slid into the passenger seat, while Jared stashed his briefcase in the back and sat behind the control yoke. Once the doors were shut, Jared turned his attention back to the cop. So, what can I do for you? The cop reached out and took Jared's hand in both of his. You've already done it. Jared felt a sudden, sharp prick on his hand. He jerked away, saw a small white patch stuck to the back of his hand. What the hell? The officer grabbed both of Jared's arms, pushed him back against the door. Sorry about this, Doc. It's nothing personal. Jared tried to fight back, tried to get loose, but his head was swimming and his vision was going black around the edges. He reached for the door handle, but his hands were limp, dead weights at the end of his wrists. He tried to shout, but the cop covered his mouth firmly with one hand. "'Shh,' the cop said. "'Just relax, Doc. Relax.' Jared was the furthest thing in the world from relaxed, but his body refused to respond. 
His eyes darted around wildly, looking for anyone who might help him. He saw the other officers from the surveillance van approaching in the rearview mirror, and he had a moment of hope. Until they opened the door of the skimmer, lifted Jared out, and deposited him in the trunk of his own vehicle. The hatch slammed shut, trapping Jared in darkness. He couldn't feel his arms and legs anymore. He heard the engine start, felt the skimmer raise off its landing skids, and pull out of the parking space. A few minutes later, his hearing faded as well, and Jared Tamlin slipped into unconsciousness. And that's the end of Chapter 25. Tune in next time for Chapter 26, when we find out what Jared's gotten himself into, and Michael faces some stern questions from his superior officer. Chinua Echebe said, I believe myself that a good writer doesn't really need to be told anything, except to keep at it. So let's see how I'm doing with my own writing endeavors. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 3,763 words this week, over the course of 5.75 hours, for an average writing speed of 654 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 35 days without breaking my chain. Homecoming is now in Chapter 6, and this is definitely taking on the flavor of an erotic romance-slash-adventure. I have decided to embrace this fully, and Metamore's magic and transformation-heavy setting gives me the perfect opportunity for some sexy shenanigans. The story is now over 14,000 words, and it is already the hottest, weirdest, and most playful story I think I've ever written. I hope you guys will enjoy it when it's finished, because I am having a blast writing it. Over on the Patreon feed, Carol Foote has released her second piece of bonus art. This one is from Part 2 of To Walk in Shadow, and it depicts Baal sending his essence into the plane of shadow, while Xiang Jin stands guard. This is a very cool piece, and it's available to my patrons at all donation levels. That's at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. This week, my wife Melanie and I launched a GoFundMe campaign for our dog Cedar, who is currently going through treatment for a heartworm infestation. Cedar was rescued from a hoarding situation, and unfortunately he got infected before the rescue group could put him on HeartGuard, the preventative heartworm medication. Killing the adult worms is a difficult and expensive process, so we're asking for some help. You can learn more at the link in the show notes. Every little bit helps, and a big thank you to everyone who has given already. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. 
Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.